if someone told you, number one, that there were these accumulating dead or dysfunctional cells that are building up in your body, number one, and that these cells are secreting these inflammatory chemicals all throughout your body. And the third thing is that you actually have the ability to go in there and get rid of these senescent cells. I think anybody can be called to action because of that. I think it's really incredibly empowering for people to understand that you can stay in control of your health through some really interesting game-changing science that's occurring in the area of cellular senescence right now. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you about a protocol that I'm passionate about that I use in my practice. You know, everyone wants to slow down aging, but few are really doing it the right way. There's something I do recommend for my clients doing just two days a month. It's a bodily cleanse that helps get rid of old defective cells. These are sometimes called senescent cells or referred to as zombie cells. And they are shown to be related to so many symptoms of poor aging. This bodily cleanse is a supplement which contains a group of ingredients called senolytics. Senolytic ingredients help our body to flush senescent cells helping with easier repair and rejuvenation from muscles to joints to how we feel every day. Qualia Synolytic is the bodily cleanse supplement taken just two days a month for healthy aging that you have to try. Now, research on aging and longevity, including a beta study on Qualia Synolytic, shows that Synolytic supplementation can play a huge role in enhancing how we age. Now, to learn more about Synolytic research and to try Qualia Synolytic risk-free for 100 days, Go to neurohacker.com, use the code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for a free gift with purchase. That's Qualius Synolytic for better aging at neurohacker.com. Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to announce today's podcast. Uh, First, I'll announce myself. I'm Lauren Alexander here at Neurohacker. You don't know me, but I have been working on nearly every episode of Collective Insights, so I'm very excited to have a chance to be here directly with you. Such an honor to serve this community. So today we're covering one of the most exciting areas of longevity and anti-aging, which is senescent cells and senolytics. This is really at the cusp of all of the research right now. And the things that we're learning and discovering are quite frankly, electrifying. And you know, to just speak a little bit about it, you know, the belief has always been that the issues, you know, lie in the health of the tissues, but it looks like the health of the tissues lie in the health of the cell and understanding how we can support the body to remove and eliminate damaged cells and make room for more healthy and young cells seems to be a winning formula for unlocking health at scale. So I have with me two of the most brilliant minds on the subject matter Dr. Nick Bitts and Dr. Gregory Kelly. Dr. Gregory Kelly has been on the podcast several times. He's Senior Director of Product Development and Neurohacker Collective, a naturopathic physician, and he's author of the book Shapeshift. And we also have with us Dr. Nick Bitts. He also is a naturopathic physician and specializes in Ayurvedic medicine. He is the leading voice in natural products industry and is serving as Senior VP of Product Development at Neurohacker Collective. So without further ado, 
let's bring on our guest, Dr. Greg, Dr. Nick, and let's get right to it. Greg, tell us, what is cellular senescence and why should anybody care? So it's, a, it's actually a huge question, but I'm going to keep this part super brief. The general idea of cellular senescence is that certain cells will become at some point unable to divide and create pro progeny, basically new cells that would be clones of themselves. The cells that are unable to make new cells are collectively called senescent cells. And why that's important for aging is the science that's evolved, especially over the, say, last seven years since 2015, um, and really starting up to emerge around 2009, is that as we get older, more and more of these senescent or you know aged, unable to replicate themselves cells accumulate in our tissues. And not only do they accumulate, but that accumulation seems to track really strongly with the health both of our tissues and ultimately of ourselves. So when we talk about wanting to you know live healthier longer, a big reason or a big impediment to that is the senescent cell load in our tissues. So um, Nick, do you have anything you'd love to add to that? Yeah, I think that's it at its core. You know, when I think of cellular senescence, uh, really, when I when I get into the science, anything that's technical, I like to break it down in terms of Latin. And you know, senescence is and the root word comes from Latin, of course, and it's senex, which means to age. So, the concept as a whole is really critical to the process of aging. Cellular senescence is this idea that cells age, just like the human ages, the cells age, and and what happens after the cell ages is really this whole area of science that is cellular senescence that I, for me is just super exciting. It's mind blowing. It's a really ripe field right now. And there's a lot happening in this. And, and what's intriguing from my standpoint really is that not only is this area just emerging and there's a lot of new science in this area, but it, we're now finding that there's tools that can undercut the whole process of cellular senescence, which from my standpoint is, is really exciting because we can do something to undercut aging. So I know there's a lot of analogies to help understand cellular senescence, the zombie analogy, the plant analogy. Greg, can you maybe unpack a couple of or both of those analogies? Yeah. When you Think of it, the senescent cells. So I mentioned they don't divide any longer. So what the cellular senescent software or program that cells execute that stops them from dividing, that should lead to, and this is where the plant analogy comes in. So we, we tend to use the idea of leaves falling off a plant because the process then that this senescent cell should go through is called apoptosis. This is this time from a Greek word, not a Latin word, but the Greek word would imply something like leaves falling off a tree, fruit falling off a plant, that idea of falling off. So senescent cells should quite literally fall out of our tissues by going through this apoptosis process. And what seems to happen with aging is that a fair number of them resist this falling off process. So they become non-removable. So you being a gardener, Laura, you and I have talked about this. It, it's very akin to yellowing leaves on a plant, right? We ideally, those leaves should just fall off. But as any gardener knows, some decide to just hang on and linger on the plant. They 
then use resources that would better be served going to a more you know vibrant new leaf. They impede new growth, and ultimately they impact both the health and the beauty of the plant. So senescent cells tend to do those same thing, which is why we use the plant analogy. And the zombie analogy we didn't create, but um, has existed in the field of senescent cells for quite a while. And the idea behind that is because these cells are frozen, right? They're, they haven't gone through apoptosis. Like ideally they're queued up for that, but they haven't. So they're not gone through what's called programmed cell death and they're not able to reproduce. They're not quite living cells as you would think of that term. So they're stuck in this limbo in between akin to like a, you know, a zombie in a book or a movie. And the other reason that that um, analogy of a zombie cell becomes important is senescent cells can secrete chemicals into the environment surrounding them. And those chemicals can take healthy cells and turn them into new senescent cells. So very much akin to how a zombie can take a healthy human and make them into a zombie. So that that's why these two metaphors both work. And you know, I, I think I go back and forth, but I tend to be the gardener metaphor much more because I think, as Nick mentioned, you know, I've been driven for decades by the question of what does health like, but I'm much more drawn to actionable things. And in the different, you know, notions of what contributes to aging, right now, removing senescent cells, doing something akin to pruning them off is, if not the most actionable thing, certainly one of the few that are actionable. Nick? Anything yeah, to add here? Yeah, very well put, Greg. I love listening to how you lay this all out. I mean, the concept of apoptosis is, uh, it, I think it's fascinating. I mean, we lose between 50 and 70 billion cells each day due to apoptosis. And we have 37 trillion cells. And so we're constantly turning over these cells. And so obviously that has a huge impact in terms of health as well as dysfunction in the body. And so that is really, I think, the core essence in my mind in terms of cell senescence. And I, I, I think this concept of transient versus lingering senescent cells is critically important here. And it's, for me, it, it was game changing to really understand this whole concept. And, and cells will go through apoptosis. And if they don't, they will get plucked from the body and eliminated pretty effectively, usually within days or weeks. And, and that's normal. And that's known as transient cell senescence. But this idea of lingering, there's these cells are, are programmed to linger in the body for a number of different reasons. And that is when you get this kind of zombie response in the bodies. These cells end up taking space in tissues and, and, the, and basically the, the structure is changed. The function of that tissue is changed. And these cells are secreting these, what are known as SASP factors. And SASP factors are in essence, really just inflammatory compounds that are really influencing the microenvironment of that tissue. We now know that they're getting into the system as well. So they're not even local, they're systemic. And, and not only are they creating this kind of a low grade inflammation, um, both locally and systemically, but they're converting healthy cells into senescent cells. And so in a lab setting, you can put just a couple senescent cells into healthy joints of mice, as it were. And, and just a couple cells, one cell among maybe 15,000 uh, healthy cells will, will create a senescence uh, phenotype and, and creates a lot of health issues. And you see, as an example, when you put it into a mouse joint, you see that um, the cartilage will erode, 
the mouse will have trouble walking and you know their health span, their lifespan will shrink. And so just one cell can really impact the entire body. And that is that, that kind of zombie effect in essence. Wow. Well, I jumped right in, but I want to now tie in cellul cellular senescence and the hallmarks of aging, which some of our audience is familiar with, but maybe you can uh, lay that out and, and kind of speak about cellular senescence role in the hallmark of aging, because it's not just a chart, like one thing actually affects other elements that are listed in there. So what's to take this one? <laughs> Greg? Sure. So the, the hallmarks of aging was um, a 2013 paper and essentially proposed that there's nine characteristics that organisms of all type, you know, flies all the way up to humans have in common. So these are things like our telomeres or telomeres, I've heard it said both ways, getting shorter. It's often called DNA or genomic instability, but think of it as that our DNA has started to get corrupted and doesn't make such good copies of itself. Another one is mitochondrial dysfunction and I know I've done a podcast on mitochondria in the past with Dr. Molly. Um, you know, so there's these nine things, and one of the nine is like senescence, which we've talked about. And then much more recently, and by that I mean this um, December 2022, three, I think it was three additional ones were proposed to be added. Uh, and one of those is the gut microbiome, which we'll talk a lot more about in the future, I'm sure, on Collective Insights Podcast. So Cellular senescence then becomes one of these characteristics that all aging organisms have, and we've talked about you know the what that then does. This is the idea of you know a greater percentage of our tissues are taken up with these cells that are using resources but not producing a lot of great health outcomes for us. And so, the within kind of the the aging community, you also then see what I would say are camps of what's the main cause of aging and. There's lots of theories that can fall into either of these camps, but the camps typically are, are dumped into aging as a result of damage accumulation. So the damage accumulation camp. And what they would say is that the reason we age and express you know, issues with aging is because of accumulation of damage over time in our cells, mitochondria, ultimately tissues. The other camp would be we're programmed to age. So the idea being, and this is Darwinian, like evolution, the idea being that really our genes solely care about passing themselves on. So once we've you know, passed beyond reproductive age, our, we're programmed, our, probably our immune system, our hormones, our DNA, to essentially enact the, oh, get old, remove this person from the pool. So there's less, you know, now people competing for resources because Darwinian evolution, that idea of competition, right, for scarce resources. So those two camps, and the, the thing about senescent cells is they actually make sense in either paradigm. So there is certainly an aspect of damage accumulation. And as Nick mentioned, you know, one of the most exciting things was what happens when some of these are removed from older animals in terms of rejuvenation. But they also make sense in that programmed aging idea that the genes that would essentially make more cells resistance to being pruned away or falling off get expressed differently as we age. And there, you know, the immune system we also know ages relatively poorly. So either camp tends to claim senescent cells 
as essentially validating their theory. Yeah, I'll add to that as well. I mean, so currently the hallmarks of aging is really the the I'm going to say the best model of aging that we have. You know, again, there there's no one model that accurately describes aging as a whole. Of course, there's you know there's different ways to to talk about this. One way that that I've read in the literature, which I love, is this idea of it's really the parable of the blind men and the elephant. And we've all probably heard this story before, but you know, four blind men come up to an elephant and they are asked to describe the elephant. What is their experience of it? And so one man grabs the leg and he can describe the leg. The other one grabs a tusk. The other one grabs a tail. You know, and so they're they're all having their own kind of unique, isolated viewpoint of what an elephant is, but it's not the complete picture of what an elephant is as a whole. But I think the hallmarks tries to encapsulate the aging process in in a lot of really good ways. Each of those nine hallmarks was was chosen for a really good reason. Number one, we know that it manifests during normal aging. Number two, we know that uh, experimentally, when you can increase it, it will accelerate the aging process. And then the third thing is that experimentally, if you can lower it, you can actually attenuate the aging process and increase healthy lifespan. And so it, it really is based in good science. I love that cellular senescence is one of them. It is, in my mind, the one that really is connected to, to all of them, to eight of the other ones. And so they don't act in isolation. They really work together and they influence each other in unique ways. There are primary um, hallmarks that, that lead to damage. Then there are secondary hallmarks that respond to the damage and then there's kind of tertiary or integrative hallmarks that that we see in a clinical setting, as it were, that are the, the true manifestation of the phenotype of aging over time. And so the hallmarks of aging for me is just a really beautiful story. But to Greg's point, it's it's not the end all and be all. It's still an evolving model. We are adding to it. There was a, an aging conference in Copenhagen where they have put forth new hallmarks that they want to add to these nine. And so Greg talked about the microbiome disturbances being one. Another one is inflammation. I mean, we hear a lot about inflammation. I think we can all agree that that is driving aging uh, in large part, but currently it's not part of the Hallmark model. So I, I look forward to expanding that. You know, in a year, maybe we're going to be talking about the the 14 Hallmarks of aging, but right now it's it's the nine and cellular senescence, I think is the most interesting right now. And one thing just to add on to that, so Nick mentioned that think of some of these as being interacting things, not separate things. And so telomere attrition is an example. The original work that led to the identification of senescent cells was this realization, and this goes back to 1961 and a research named Hayflick. But the idea was if you had healthy cells in a dish, they would only divide so many times before they just hit the wall. They couldn't divide anymore. That's now called the Hayflick limit, and the, described as replicative senescence. They basically become aged because they divide it so many times. And the key thing that causes that is our telomere shortening, as an example, right? So we know that one of the things that can cause cells to choose to become senescent is if telomeres become too short. The And then the reason that that causes it, it's called the DNA damage response, DDR. But we don't want cells to copy errors into new cells. So senescence is one of the software programs executed 
to prevent genomic instability. So genomic instability was another of the hallmarks. So they tend to fit together. And as Nick mentioned, Sully Senescence is a, a somewhat of a hub for a whole bunch of the different hallmarks. Awesome. So we've we've talked about, you know, so where I guess the thing I want to get to is like visualization of where these senescent cells are lurking. It sounds like they can be anywhere, but are there classical places where they accumulate? Like I've heard you mentioned joints, perhaps brain tissue. Like, could we speak on maybe some of the areas that are classic for them to accumulate? Like why they accumulate in different areas? Maybe touch on what that accumulation could translate into. I know that's a big question, but let's let's navigate that kind of area together. So I, so I think for our audience, there's some cells that their job is to renew, replicate, make clones of themselves. There's others that are fully differentiated and they're basically good for a lifetime. So they're, they don't go through what's called mitosis. They don't create new cells. And classically, what you would think of senescent cells is accumulating much more in places in the body where cells are replicating themselves. So the knee joints is an example, skin, muscle tissue, neurons in the brain used to be thought of as something that didn't replicate. That Now there's some definitely some at least limited neurogenesis in parts of the brain. But like I guess to answer your question, senescence can happen anywhere, but it's certainly much more likely to impact health in areas where cells are renewing quickly. So joints being, you know, an example of you know, one of those areas, but as I mentioned, muscle, skin, adipose cells don't necessarily renew per se, but they can divide. So a lot of what we think of as metabolic health issues are at least contributed to by senescent cells and fat tissue. Yeah. And I'll add, I mean, the research is still early days and we're learning a lot more about senescence as a whole and where these cells are and, and how they how they manifest. With all that said, you know, we we... The science so far shows us that about 10% of all tissues in the body in advanced age have markers of senescence, and you really do see it in all cells. And so again, we have 37 trillion cells. Almost all of them are going through apoptosis at some stage in life, um, aside from neurons in the brain, peripheral nerves, um, as well as the cells that are in uh, the, the lens of the eyeball. And and beyond that, you know, I would expect there to be problems throughout all throughout the entire body. As an example, we're learning more about the brain as it relates to senescence, which is which is fascinating. We know that neurons don't turn over. You have your set of neurons for your entire lifetime, but the surrounding cells around neurons do go through apoptosis and can become. Uh, senescent cells, as it were, which can impact cognitive function and can and really shift the the, the structure and the and the function of the brain as we age. I think for our audience, maybe the big picture is there's almost no common area thought of as an issue with aging that senescent cells aren't so far shown to impact in different animal experiments or human. So you know, if if you can think of you know just like physical function and appearance of aging, senescent cells directly contribute to that in almost every tissue. Yeah. Yeah. No, as I was visualizing what you were describing, which is, you know, re- you know, stiffness in joints, like just uh, the describing like the symptoms of aging, right? It's the stiffness in joints, re- reduction in muscle mass and strength, you know, maybe some cognitive uh, aspects, skin aging manifestation. And then now you're kind of tying it all to an accumulation, perhaps, of 
senescent cells in those areas and those tissues of the body does kind of paint a kind of picture that maps really cleanly with our idea of what it is to age. And now getting into the exciting part of like, okay, what can we do about it? And that's where Senolytics come in. And, you know, Mayo Clinic and Scripps Institute really kind of kicked off this area of research. And so I kind of founded the term Senolytics. So maybe Greg, you can speak to that research and kind of what the implications were for Senolytics and maybe a little bit on their study. Sure. So I guess like a quick history lesson. So I mentioned the idea of replicative senescence goes back to 1961. But I don't think it was termed senescence until the early 70s. And apoptosis is an example, telomeres, those things all came you know, later. And so senescence, in a sense, has been known about for 60 years. But it really wasn't until, I, don't know, I would say, around 2008, 2009, 2010, that the contribution to aging of what we would think of as what Nick said, um, lingering senescent cells started to come on the radar. Before that, there was the general idea that, oh, okay, cells can only divide so many times before they hit the wall, um, become senescent. That probably has something to do with aging, but what exactly that is, we don't really know. And emerging since that 2008, 2009 is that term that Nick mentioned, SAF, senescence-associated secretory phenotype, that what senescent cells can um, secrete into the environment around them and zombify other cells or you know cause the equivalent of you know more yellow leaves on a plant. And so that kind of kind of caused a big uptick in interest in cellular senescence. And then in 2015, Mayo Clinic and Scripps Institute of Aging, as you mentioned, um, coined the term senolytic for compounds that would allow these senescent cells to complete this journey to falling off. So what they did is they looked at these apoptotic mechanisms. So one of the, the, the commonalities in senescent cells, at least the lingering ones, is they tend to resist this falling off process. So they're apoptosis resistant. They secrete these SAS factors into the environment around them, and then they express distinct proteins that essentially the 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 ratio of those proteins determines whether the cell says, no, I'm hanging out or I'm going to fall off. And so what the Mayo Clinic researchers and Swift researchers did, they looked at some of these proteins in cells that give this apoptotic resistance, identified compounds that they hypothesized, they shift that ratio back in favor of, oh, I guess I'll go through this falling off process instead, and found two compounds that strongly did that. Uh, one of them is quercetin, which um, we'll talk a bit more about. It's in our qualiocenolytic. But that birthed this idea of, oh, well, compounds that can shift this ratio and cause these apoptosis-resistant senescent cells to change their mind and go through falling off, let's call those senolytics. And again, Nick loves Latin terms, so I'll let him tell you what the senolytic term means. You teed that up perfectly, and that's exactly where I was going to start my my little uh, monologue here. I yeah, so you know, it, senolytic is it's a funny word, but again, if you break it down, it's it's really the conjugation of two words, senex and and lytic or lytic. Senex, of course, means aging, and lytic means to destroy. 
And so it's really to destroy senescence in essence. And, and that's really the, the promise and the potential of senolytics. You know, I, I think if you even just push aside the, the technical jargon, it's really mind blowing to think about this whole area of healthcare right now. You know, I think you can get bogged down getting into the, the technical terms and, and I think it turns off a lot of people, but the more that I'm talking about senescence and senolytics, I'm seeing people get inspired by just the idea of what these can do in the body. I think if someone told you, number one, that there were these accumulating dead or dysfunctional cells that are building up in your body, number one, and that these cells are secreting these inflammatory chemicals all throughout your body. And the third thing is that you actually have the ability to go in there and get rid of these senescent cells. I think anybody can be called to action because of that. I think it's really incredibly empowering for people to understand that you can stay in control of your health through some really interesting game-changing science that's occurring in the area of cellular senescence right now. And so how these things work is, is, is I think, really interesting as well. In essence, they induce apoptosis and they're selective. So they're not going through the body and they're inducing apoptosis for healthy cells because they are working specifically through these SCAP networks, which are these anti-aptotic networks that these senescent cells express, we can go in there, undercut that, disturb that SCAP network. And in turn, we basically move these lingering senescent cells into a transient phenotype. And we make the cell susceptible to apoptosis so that the cell then is pulled from the body, makes space for new cells and tissues that stem cells can come in there and, and do what they need to do to revitalize the tissues. So I'll leave it at that. Wow. One of the things we haven't talked about, but I know I've been asked it in a few other podcasts is, well, what causes the cells to become senescent? And I think that's worth just a minute or yeah. two. So we mentioned like, you know, one of those would be that they've just hit the wall in terms of number of times they can reproduce. My intuition is that's probably not a driving cause of the type of lingering senescence we talk about with aging. So in the, like um, a test tube, you can also cause cells to hit senescence way before that, you know, 50 divisions by doing things that would stress the cell culture. And that's typically called premature, premature stress-induced senescence. And they, like anything you think of as, you know, what might be cellular stress. So you know, radiation, um, not enough nutrition, um, anything in that stress category can cause this premature stress-induced senescence. And my intuition is a lot of what's causing us to accumulate senescent cells, and especially these ones that linger, is, you know, the, collectively all the different stresses that, you know, as an organism, like that we're exposed to, but then that our cells are exposed to. So, one of the things I think that's important to, I guess, talk about is how cells respond to stress, right? Because the goal, you know, one, we want to prune these away, right? So, you know, we'll talk more about the compounds and quasi but I think we also want to do things to make our cells more resilient so that they don't become prone to this stress-induced senescence. And so when I think of, you know, what happens when a cell is stressed, I think of it as a continuum. Like first, they're going to try to protect themselves. So antioxidant defenses would be one of those things. So they'll try to make themselves more resilient by creating more 
compounds that help them deal with oxidative stress because a commonality of almost any type of stress is that it causes oxidative damage. And if it, that ends up not being enough, then typically the next thing that happens is some of the things within cells get mucked up a little bit, right? Proteins get um, you know, misfolded, organelles get slightly damaged, mitochondria be stressed. And that's where this idea of autophagy that I know the biohacker community loves and we love comes in. So autophagy is about recycling things inside cells. And so a classic signal that would cause cells to say, oh, let's prioritize autophagy would be a short-term fast. Something like the fasting mimicking diet that we've had um, Walter Longo on our podcast in the past and we've written about it. But short-term fasts tend to send this signal like, oh, there's not enough you know, protein and other things coming in, I better scan and find disposable versions of that inside cell. So let me selectively find things that are already a little mucked up and recycle them to use those proteins. So that's autophagy. And, um, you know, so the next step after trying to defend themselves and become resilient is selectively, you know, cleaning up or recycling things that are slightly damaged. And when a cell's moved past the point that that would even work, then that's when you would have senescence. Like, okay, there's enough damage in here. Let's not even muck around with it anymore. Let's just freeze it where you are, turn you into a zombie, or let the immune system, you know, worry about finding you down in the future. And what I've seen those few times on podcasts is people have confused autophagy with uh, senescence. And I think the key idea I want to communicate is think of autophagy as something that helps cells uh, or helps prevent cells from becoming senescent. But once they are senescent, autophagy is no longer the goal. We need to prove those cells off. So in terms of practices, you you need an autophagy practice and you need cellular senescence practice in order to keep these things tight and clean in the body. Yeah. And a resilience, you know, like at the core, you know, we want, you know, like my goal would be doing things through the month to make, you know, give my cells more resources, make my mitochondria fitter so they can deal with some stress, right? So, you know, I take quality life as an example, um, Monday through Friday personally, right? Because that's what that would be designed for. And then, you know, autophagy, yeah, I mean, you know, people do the time-restricted type of intermittent fasting or short baths. Those are, you know, um, very strongly autophagy supportive strategies in part because one of the, the signals that would cue a cell like, hey, execute autophagy is when nutrients become relatively unavailable. But we don't want to do long fast. That, you know, that's a completely different thing. We want to fast and recede. And then we want to periodically this, you know, whether we do the, those things or not, we want to prune away the yellowing leaves. And that's where senolytics come in. I think that's you're you're shedding light on a very interesting point here. You know, I, I'm I'm listening to you and I'm I'm having this realization that cellular senescence is a root contributor to aging, but it may not be the root, meaning there are things that actually lead to cellular senescence. And so we can focus on cellular senescence, which is critically important, but we can actually go deeper and get at these root causes that are leading to senescence. And so autophagy, really optimizing that as a process, critically important. The other thought that I had was just telomeres. You know, if a telomere attrition or the shortening of telomeres is the primary cause or causative factor leading to senescence, 
how do we take care of our, care of our telomeres? And of course, there's, there's a number of ways that we can do this. You know, we can preserve length through the various antioxidants. You know, I know there's good research on selenium and CoQ10, as it were. There's certain compounds, astragalus. There's a specific extract that uh, is known to produce more telomerase, which adds nucleotides to the end of telomeres, and they can help, quote unquote, restore telomere length. Of course, the basics, the foundational things we know can, can improve telomere health too, sleeping, quitting smoking, eating a, a very nutrient-dense diet, such as the Mediterranean diet or the Blue Zone diet, physical activity. So I think that there's even a more root cause thing that we can talk about as well. But focusing on cellular senescence is great because, again, it's very actionable. Take two groups of otherwise the same age, you know, adult humans. One of the things that predicts shorter telomeres is stress, but very strongly predicts it. So again, I think um, one, my intuition is that the telomere shortening, that variant of cellular senescence is relatively, you know, not that important for aging. It's the stress induced, but stress is going to cause, you know, issues with telomeres as well. So uh, again, I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about it personally, you and I, Lauren, over the years is, you know, stress is like kryptonite for almost everything. So the the stress that we can um, mitigate in our lives, for sure, I think getting rid of some of those straws helps to uh, yeah. make us more or less likely to collapse under the weight of stress. But some of this is healthy stress, like, you know, and that hormesis, like, you know, ingesting a senolytic is inviting a level of a stress in a way. And so I think it's really kind of finding out that balance. I think you know, as a biohacker and part of biohacking community, we like to go, you know, all the way to the other end of the extreme. And so finding that measured and balanced hormetic response to stress, I think is really the thing that you're kind of emphasizing, uh, you know, here and something that I think is, we need to just pause and say, Hey guys, <laughs> not too much stress because that does have a, a cascade of negative aspects, uh, associated with it. And by hormetic, just so our audience knows, we're, we're generally talking about something akin to a Goldilocks principle, right? Like one bowl of you know soup's too cold, one's too hot, and there's one that's a just right amount. So we're talking about a just right amount of something, which gets to, you know, we haven't talked about this yet, but the idea of how xenolytic compounds are dosed. And so I'll let Nick, I'll keep this up for him, but you know, why don't we take xenolytic compounds every day, Nick, in high doses? Yeah, I mean, more is not better. It's interesting when you dig into the studies on xenolytics, they have showed that that doing big doses for a short amount of time is the most effective way. It's more effective than doing continuous dosing of xenolytics over time. And so, you know, in part, that's that's why we built the product that that we built in the way that we did, and we recommend using it in the way that we do, which is two days out of every month. So you hit you hit these cells hard. And then you step back, you let the body kind of rest and recover. And that's critically important. And so for us, it's really about safety first. And, and I think that that is an area right now that that the scientists are looking at. You know, we, we are figuring out what compounds are senolytic. But if you're using these compounds in big doses every day, trying to get a really strong physiologic effect, that really shifts the safety profile in a direction that's not favorable. And so I think you really want to encourage normal physiology. You don't want to override the body's natural intelligence and you want to do kind of the minimum effective dose. 
And so that, that to me is, is really a critical component here to this conversation. It does take several weeks for these senescent cells, perhaps even months, for them to reaccumulate in the body. And so once you hit them, they do go away for, for a good amount of time. And especially in the meantime, if you can get these foundational protocols in place to maintain core level, core foundational health, the hope is that you're not going to reaccumulate those senescent cells over time. Another thing I think it's important for our listeners to understand is the idea of a threshold effect. So it's thought that probably below a certain threshold amount of senescent cells in the tissue, what that maybe for one person could be different than another, but below that, there's probably um, low enough amounts that they're not affecting our experience of you know, healthy function. When they get above that threshold, that's when they are. So the goal of just this intermittent dosing is to gradually lower the amount so that you're going to dip back below that threshold progressively, probably over time further further below it. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, and this would be more a principle that I think is super important for health that's widely um, underappreciated, is that I firmly believe that the way that we respond things isn't based on the quantity of something, it's based on the change in quantity of something. And the analogy I use, and this goes back to the 1850s or 60s with the early experiments on our vision as an example. So if you went into a completely dark closet and lit one candle, candle crazy difference, right? It would just appear way brighter. But if you went into that same closet and there was 99 candles already lit and you'll light one more, that one candle didn't really make that much difference. And so what matters for our senses to respond to things is well, not only change, but proportional change. Like the one candle change on itself was meaningless. One compared to zero, huge contrast. One compared to already 99, tiny, tiny contrast, right? So one of the things we try to do physiologically, if we want receptors on cells, which are basically in the ears and eyes of cells, to have a big change is create contrast, right? And so when you're taking, say, this large dose of bisotin and quercetin and some of these other compounds, just a couple of days a month, you're, you're creating a huge change. Now, if you took that same amount and said, oh, I'll just do that, you know, do a much lower amount, but every day, you're now in the closet with 99 candles, right? So the that's like in terms of a working model, that's how I would also have people think about it. We want to create big contrasts. Right. Wow. Well, well put, you know. So I'd love to transition the conversation about qualia senolytic. I know that this was a, a passion product for the research and development team based on the excitement behind the research on uh, senolytics and also there being an absence of companies formulating in the way that, you know, we believed a senolytic should be formulated. And so, you know, Greg, I know you're a very vocal advocate. So maybe you could just share with us like, your perspective of what makes Qualia Senolytic so unique and innovative. So I think there's a few different things. And one is, I think it's easy to think of senescent cells as all being the same, but they're not. You'll see the term heterogeneous used quite frequently in scientific articles and studies. And that what idea meaning that the senescent cells you know, have things in common, right? They resist apoptosis, they secrete these factors, but the, you know, 
what their surface might look like, what you know, exact strategies they're using to resist apoptosis may differ and differ profoundly, especially tissue to tissue. So an initial finding that came out of the, the Scripps and Mayo work that led to the coining of the term senolytics was that quercetin was senolytic in bone marrow endothelial cells. Those are two um, types that they tested, but not at all in adipose tissue. So something could be senolytic, but that doesn't mean it's broad spectrum senolytic. It may have tissue affinities. And so one of the things I think that makes quasi-senolytic unique is that we we really factored for that. We said, okay, well, quercetin's good here and here, but not here, here, and here, and here. Well, what else can we put in that now would have activity in fat tissue and quercetin is something that has in research to date. And you know what might have some activity in the discs in your back versus the joints in your knees versus you know more cognitively for like as Nick mentioned. The, the cells that are supporting all of our neurons. And so when we created quasi-senolytic, that's part of the reason there's nine different senolytic ingredients in it, because we wanted to make sure we covered all the bases, so to speak. So that would be one. And then two, I think we're actually dosing it the way it's supposed to be dosed and you know, based on the research, right? High doses of these things, two days a week. I've seen quite a few, you know, not a quite a few, but a handful of things that call themselves senolytic products that dose crazy low doses in every day. And, you know, that's something, but I wouldn't do it as senolytic. And then the third reason goes back again to the original Mayo and Scripps work. So they were trying to find things that worked on, and Nick mentioned the term SCAP networks. So that these are the, they're called senescent cell anti-apoptotic pathways, but these are signaling pathways that cells use to do things like you know, sense nutrients in the around them. And there are also these you know, anti-apoptotic, proaptotic proteins. So what what the original researchers tried to do before they identified senolytics was they wanted to identify things they thought might be senolytic based on how it was known in other stress cells, these things affected these different proteins and pathways. And so we did something similar when we were developing quality senolytic. That's why things like milk thistle and the soy bean isoflavones are in it because they do some of these same things that help rebalance or correct these cell signaling and you know balances of pro and anti-apoptotic pathways. So I just think that the level of science, detail, dosing, you know, there's just, just nothing comparable and that's why you and I again had many talks over the years, like we just got to do this because no one else is. And at a minimum, even if no one else buys it, I want to take it. That seems to be how we green light our products these days. <laughs> it's just complete selfish reasoning. Nick, anything to add there? Oh boy, where to even start? You know, I, I, I'm super proud of this product. It's been fun to watch its development and to watch the launch and to see the enthusiasm about it and, and to see that people are having felt experiences using it, which is amazing. You know, I, I, I'll just say that I, I really like that we're using, I would say, seven of the most proven senolytic compounds. And then we're adding some novel science as well that the team has introduced a couple new compounds that that were chosen specifically based upon their mechanism. And so I think that what we're doing is that we're we're aligned with the science in a lot of ways. Our dosing of fisetin as an example 
is 20 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And that's what's used right now in all of the clinical studies. And it's been, been working really well. And so we're, we're dosing in that, in that same way. I, I love that. I, you know, we, we're coming at it from a very natural approach. We're using natural food-like compounds to create this massive change in the body. When you, when you look at our pills, they are just this yellow, like glowing, vibrant color, which is, which is indicative of the, the kind of compounds that are in there. You know, we're using a lot of flavonoid-rich compounds that seem to be very senolytic active in the body. And so, so I like that. We've taken a more natural approach, more food-like approach rather than the pharmaceutical approach. And so I think that it speaks to the safety as well as the efficacy of what we're doing. And then I love that we've done, we've done studies on our product and we're continuing to do more science there to prove that the outcome that we expect is actually there. We do that for all of our products but I, I think this area is ripe for research right now. You know, we don't have biomarkers in the field of senescence showing the amount of senescent cells that accumulate over time or the amount that is reduced after a senolytic therapy. But we can look at the outcomes. We can look at the impacts on joint health or skin health or inflammation, as it were, to show that these things are having really strong physiologic effect in the body. Yeah. Talk to me. So what, you know, about what are the felt experiences? Maybe speak a little bit about our first uh, study that we did about uh, mobility and joints and what the outcome was there. I think that that's pretty uh, interesting to speak on. Yeah, so what we did, and there's no direct way to measure senolytic or senescence happening in tissue short of a biopsy. So instead, there, we tend to use surrogates, and that's what you'd see in science, that they're using aspects of function to infer that. And so one of the, the classic things that happens as we age is our joints become a little bit you know, more stiff. We you know, struggling, struggle a bit more with what I think of as activities of daily living. So, you know, walking comfortably up and down stairs, getting in and out of car, you know, bringing our groceries into, you know, our home, things like that. So what we did is we recruited um, a subset of people that had, you know, at least a moderate amount of challenge with flexibility and with some activities of daily living. And then we had them do three cycles of quasi-senolytic. And so a cycle is the two days of dosing. And then we had them not take it, or in this case, we had them 12 days between doses. And part of the reason was we did that instead of the full you know, four weeks between doses. In a study, the longer the study goes, the harder it is to get everyone to complete it. So just to get more adherence to the study, we sped up the dosing a little bit. So over the course of what ended up being five weeks, each person would have done the equivalent of three dosing cycles. And then we had them complete questionnaires before and after to measure these different things. And what we saw was roughly a 50% improvement in being able to comfortably do these many different activities of daily living, and also about a 50% improvement in the um, flexibility, like being able to bend over comfortably, things like that. So we were, um, yeah. And, and then some of the comments, you know, we also put weight on you know, the comments people leave in, their, in our studies. So that combination of things was really exciting to see such a dramatic impact on people so quickly. Yeah. And I'll just quickly add to that, that, you know, I, I think everybody's experience for the most part is going to be unique using this product. It really is 
based upon your level of senescent cell burden, which of course we know the older you are, the more senescent cells you will have. And, and theoretically, the greater impact polyacinolytic can have for you. But it's also um, largely contingent on where the senescent cells are in the body. And so again, if, if they're all in your skin, if that's where you're accumulating them, you're going to see benefit over time, theoretically. And so I think that's why, you know, there's there's not any one experience that you that you should expect. It really is personalized. And we're we're finding that across the board. People are experiencing it in pretty dramatic, uh, but but very individual ways, which is really neat. And that gets to that idea of again that threshold effect. If if in, you know, me, you know, maybe most of my tissues come below that threshold, still good to put them away, but I'm not gonna be experiencing something. From them, but maybe you know, in this one other area, you know, I'm above that tipping point, that threshold. So that's likely where I would feel it. But someone else, that could be completely different. And so I know, Lauren, you and I were at um, a conference in Las Vegas in December. Um, A4M is the name of it. It's the big uh, medical anti-aging conference. And I generally stay at a lifelong friends home when I'm in Vegas. We grew up near Cape Cod in a little fishing town together, and I've been friends since um, third grade. So going way, way back. So um, he was, you know, because, you know, friend category, he was a relatively early polyacinolytic customer. And what he told me, and, and he, him and his um, significant other, their passion is taking in stray dogs and fostering them. So they have a shelter for dogs. And that he'd struggled for years just being able to do that throwing motion. And that he told me, oh, you know, this is the weirdest thing. Like after my third month of taking qualiacillinolytic, all of a sudden I could throw things to the dogs without experiencing discomfort anymore, right? So completely, like I would never have thought of that, right? But that, you know, that was where he was above the tipping points and it somehow seemed like it dipped him back below. So again, there's many different ways that these can hinder our performance. Um, you know, one of the areas I know I paid attention to early on, and this gets to something called anabolic resistance, but the general idea is as we get older, the anabolic signals that would cause our muscles to grow bigger and stronger, we don't respond as well. So think of it like there's already 99 candles in the closet. We just don't get that change in signals. And so because of that, you know, muscle weakness, muscles getting smaller are a big issue with people as they age. And in animals, they found that senescent cells contribute to that and doing a senolytic actually helps reverse it. So that was an area I personally paid attention to because I didn't have the, you know, the flexibility or other areas, but I had felt plateaued in my, um, my muscle workout. So early on, I was paying attention like, oh, you know, is it now easier to do more weights in it? It very much was for me. I got basically unstuck from a plateau. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, th this is what's really interesting about this product is that in many ways, if you study the research, taking it is an insurance policy. Like this is a phenomenon going on in the body and I'm going to have a pruning strategy once a month, two days a month, I'm going to take qualia senolytic. And the fact that we have people that have experience, felt experiences from taking the product is pretty exciting. And, you know, for me, in my role, I get to see so much of that feedback. And I, you know, I hear everything from less brain fog to, you know, being able to throw balls like uh, better or 
you know, gain muscle better, less stiffness in joints. And the diversity of experience is quite broad. But even, you know, there's a lot of younger people taking the product and subscribing to the product. And the thought process is like, I want to deal with this before it's a problem. I want to prune before my plant is covered in yellow leaves. And like as a gardener, I'll tell you that like it's really stressful on a plant pruning, you know, three fourths of the plant in a day. It's actually a lot better to go and snip one yellow leaf, you know, at a time and let it rejuvenate. When you let a plant go too long, you know, that really causes a lot of damage, even when you're going to repair it. And uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop myself because I could talk about gardening a lot longer uh, than I, not anyone wants to listen to. But I think the point is that this product, it, it, in many perspectives, it isn't, you know, just for an old population, isn't just for, you know, middle age. It, it really covers the whole spectrum of people, depending on what your health goals are and what you're trying to achieve. And so I think that that has a lot to do with the diversity in experiences and felt experiences from taking our senolytic. And also because we have so many different ingredients in it, you know, from quercetin, curcumin that target, some target the brain tissue, some target synaptive, which targets the muscle tissue. And so we have all of these different experiences instead of it being very narrow. And so, you know, I know that we have to go soon, but I thought maybe we could rapid fire you guys sharing a couple of your favorite ingredients and why you chose them for the formula. So maybe Nick, dive in with you first, just sharing an ingredient that you think is really impressive in the Qualia Senolytic formula. Yeah, herbs tend to be organ specific. When you get into uh, botanical medicine or herbalism, you know, all herbs, generally speaking, have an affinity for certain organs. You know, milk thistle specific for the, lore, uh, the, the liver, Ginkgo is specific for the brain, hawthorn berries for the heart, ashwagandha for the testes, black pepper for the stomach, on and on and on. I love piper longamine in this ingredient. Um, it comes from uh, the long pepper plant, which is native to Ayurveda. And, you know, this is a very old traditional rejuvenative substance. It's known as pipoli. It's a close relative to black pe pepper, and it's been used for rejuvenation Traditionally, of course, traditionally, they didn't talk about it as a senolytic per se, but it was used as a rejuvenative, mostly for the digestive system as well as the respiratory system. And so in terms of affinities, it definitely has an affinity for those two areas. So I would guess and theorize that in terms of senolytic effect, those are the same areas that this nutrient, this compound is having its effects in the body. So. I love that we're using it. You don't see that widely used right now, especially in the dietary supplement space, but I love that it's historical, yet it's incredibly cutting edge in this area of uh, senolytics. I was going to choose that one too, though, <laughs> just because it's really unique that we have that. And it was, Nick didn't mention it, but quercetin was the first natural compound that was identified as a senolytic and um, piperlongamine from piperlongam was the second. So I'm going to cheat and I'm going to grab the three yellow dye um, plants and group them all together. So those are bisotin, quercetin, and luteolin. And as Lauren mentioned and Nick mentioned, the color of the capsules is this really, you know, like cool, almost like a light lemony yellow color. And a big part of the reason is those three plant pigments, that they're all things that would be, you know, their names, two of them, luteolin and bisotin, actually 
come from their yellow color, one from German, one from Latin. And so they tend to have, you know, some unique, you know, aspects, some overlap. I mentioned, you know, bisotin as an example, you know, more globally active in, in tissues, sometimes like quercetin is like adipose tissue as an example. But I think that neurohacker collective, we love the idea of redundancy that the science team, right? So what, um, you know, complex systems, they'll often use the word degeneracy, but think of degeneracy as meaning biological redundant. So we, I remember early on when Daniel Smackenberger first hired me, he said, Ben, I love, you know, when we put a stack of things together, that having one ingredient that could do multiple things and having multiple ingredients that do the same thing. I love redundancy. And so that's why, you know, we, we could have just said, oh, we'll just give isotin because you know, there's certainly biohackers that just take that. And we think as a science team at Neurohacker Collective that when, you know, things like SCAP networks and networks, the term that's part of complexity science, right? Right. Well, we have on our blog an entire write-up of every ingredient in qualia senolytic. And it's called The Formulator's View of Qualia Senolytic. It was written by Dr. Greg. And I invite everyone uh, who's listened this far to read it because you will really cement your understanding of cellular senescence as well as get really educated on these uh, natural compounds that are quite novel. Before we wrap, I, you know, of course, I'm head of marketing, so I got it. I put together a special offer for everyone that's listening. If you go to neurohacker.com slash podcast offer, you're going to get the best price available for Qualia Senolytic. It is special just for the listeners. And so please check it out and know that uh, we have a 100-day money-back guarantee. So really just give it a try and, and kind of see for yourself what you can do with adding a senolytic practice to your kind of health program. And so again, that's neurohacker.com slash podcast offer. Well, thank you so much, Greg and Nick. This has been super fun. I want to give you both the last word if you have anything to say. So go ahead. No, I'm just really excited that we're able to share this product with our community. So um, I was excited to you know, finally have it available for myself, for my friends, for my family. So I invite all of you listening to you know, enjoy it. It's a great product. Yeah, and I, I second that. I mean, I love creating products that I want to take. And, and this certainly has been one of them, taking several rounds. I've enjoyed the experience thus far. And I love that, you know, this is actually getting at the root cause. I mean, I think we, we talk about that a lot, uh, both the healthcare industry, the dietary supplement industry, biohackers, but are we always doing it? I'm going to say no. I, I like that this is really undercutting the root cause of aging and it's really getting in there and doing some good work. So uh, I'm proud of this product. I hope that more people can continue to take it. And uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun for me to dive into the science. I can't wait to keep learning more in this area. The one other thing I just want to mention too, and again, this is, um, I think goes to our dosing. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, I, I know some people are overwhelmed with the number of pills they maybe take daily. This for me is super easy. I just one week in a month, take this and don't take anything else. And that's it. I don't have to worry about it for the next month. So I just love that dosing approach where, you know, we're getting, you know, basically days, days and days, if not longer of benefits for just a simple two day a month. 
approach. Yeah. Can you make all our supplements like this? This is so nice. Only two days a month. <laughs> I wish. Please. <laughs> well, also, thanks again, community of Collective Insights. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It is an honor to serve you guys and have a great one. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.